0: Thank you men and uh, lady um, for reminding us of such a great truth of being held fast. As we were singing that song I was with my son in the back row and for some of it I could still hold him about halfway through I had to put him down he's getting heavy. <laughs> and I like to squeeze him when we sing those, that uh, chorus he will hold me fast. And um, though I'm in my 40s That young age, I still like to think about being held. I remember the times my dad would hold me close. Do you remember those times? The significance of a father's love and hold and grasp and grip upon you. Those are good memories. And we may not have as many as we'd like to, or maybe we don't have those this morning. But God has promised. And that's the truth we think about today that He will hold us. There's no greater grip than the grace of God in the life of His child. Are you held by God's grasp of grace today? I hope so. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 4. David is one who understood the grasp of God in his life and understood the perspective necessary in life in order to move forward in times in which it feels like maybe the grasp of your enemies has gotten a hold of you, those who would oppose you. Psalm chapter 4, I trust you've turned there and will follow along as I read and we will sing this song beyond this occasion into the days in which you might find yourself faced with foes. Psalm chapter 4. For the choir director on stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, Who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart, more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your arms received us, grasped us, and you call us your own, not because you looked out upon us and saw any good within, but you saw the work of your Son, and you accepted the sacrifice he made, the righteous sacrifice on our behalf. We find our righteousness today in Him. And I pray for any this morning who don't know that righteousness, who don't know the finished work of Christ, the finished and final sacrifice on the cross of Calvary, that today, Father, that You would call them to Yourself. And for those of us who are Your children, may we be reminded of our place that we can have before You in prayer. The purpose we have in life And so, Father, be pleased to use this psalm to challenge our lives, to change us, to cause us to take times of lamentation to times of celebration. And we ask this for your good purposes and pleasure in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The story is told of a man whose grandson rode a donkey while they were traveling from one city to, to another. The man heard some people say, Would you look at that old man suffering on his feet while that strong young boy is totally capable of walking? So then the old man rode the donkey while the boy walked. And he heard some people say, Would you look at that? A healthy man making the poor young boy suffer. Can you believe it? So the man and the boy both rode the donkey, and they heard some people say, Would you look at that? Those heavy brutes making that poor donkey suffer. So they both got off and walked until they heard some people say, Would you th- that? That waste, a perfectly good donkey not being used. Finally, the the scene shifts, and and the, the boy is walking, and the old man is carrying the donkey. No matter what you do, someone will always criticize. Criticism abounds. One person said wisely, you know... Opinions are like a nose. Everyone's got one. I have always considered myself to have a big nose. My wife says no. Look at, the, look at that in profile. Is that not a big nose? I am one opinionated person. And likely so are you. And you might know some people who are critical. Critical. And if you are in any type of leadership, guess what? You've been criticized. You likely have enemies. There's probably people who walk around with BOSS on their mug and have little sayings underneath it about you. You're a parent. You've often been criticized. You don't love me. Right? You don't give me what I want. And the criticism, the challenges, and the oppositions from within the household. No doubt abounds. Criticisms are there. Those who object to you will be there. People who will find fault with you. No doubt will arise, no matter what position you have, because if you are not a boss, you are a worker, laborer, employee, servant, sometimes feel like slave, which is not a bad thing always in the Bible, by the way. And some have been treated very well, and, but some not. Really? We know that. And you felt the pressures of those who would criticize and critique and move you along in their ways so that you become a better worker, labor employee, you name it. And maybe they treat poorly. This is the type of places we often find ourselves in one time of life or another. We find ourselves in great opposition. And that is certainly there. And we, and we can find some application there. But I would submit to you today that when we look at David, we together as a church, corporately, might find the significance of the necessity to remember our calling and our place amidst times of much opposition and conflict in the society in which we live. For if you will follow me, Jesus says, you will be Persecuted. And while you might find it difficult to be under the the leadership of another person in this life, what's most significant is you find yourself under the the rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you follow his way. And as you do that, you find great joy in doing the things that he's called us to do. We find David in great opposition in this psalm. We see him like us likely being criticized as we follow Christ and seek to do the things that would honor Him, to carry on the name of Christ for the gospel's sake, to see the church grow and ultimately the kingdom of God expand so that the hallelujah praises in Psalm 150, as Dale brought to us last week, would just multiply in the heavens. And ultimately, this earth as it should be in the future rule in the reign of Christ, in which David was a picture certainly of the future. You know, it's been credited to Theodore Roosevelt for saying it is not the critic who counts, not the one who points out how the strong man stumbles or how the doer of deeds might have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena. Whose face is marred with sweat and dust and blood. Who strives valiantly. Who errs and comes short again and again. Who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, and spends himself in a worthy cause. Who if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly. That is the place. That is his place. That shall never be with those who are cold and timid. Souls who know neither victory nor defeat. And this was said of Winston Churchill. And David was a man who, whose life is much to look at. And said that you could look at Winston Churchill and find his faults in five minutes. But the study of his life and the, and the success of his, his service had to his country and the world a lifetime. But, how about David? All of us can throw darts at this man's life, can't we? God makes... Scripture's real by putting on display the false character flaws of people we read about. But when placed in the hand of God, great value lasts not just in a lifetime to be examined, but in eternity where God will be praised. And David provides for us a psalm by which we can look at and find some direction in days of of difficulty. Days where we might find ourselves trapped between the proverbial rock and a hard place where we're cornered. And likely you've felt that way before, I imagine, right? You've been there. And David helps us to see what we can do through those difficult times. We read that this psalm, Psalm 4 is for the choir director on stringed instruments. I love that because I try to play the guitar. Not like these guys do. I don't even dream that well. But I like the the guitar. I'm so musically uh, declined that um, it wasn't that long ago, I'm not going to tell you how long ago, that I learned that the piano is a stringed instrument. You all knew that already, right? Yeah. There's strings underneath there that get hit by little hammers. And if you're in like carpentry, that's really cool because hammers make music. But, but the, the stringed instruments. God calls together many instruments as we saw last week in Psalm 150. And here he calls for stringed instruments. And my mind goes awry to think about all the instruments that might have been in the past that were used. Praise God. I don't know what they used. Maybe it was, uh, maybe it was a, 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 a lyre. Maybe it was a harp. Maybe it was a harp. Um, I don't know, but these instruments were called together to join the lyrics that would be sung by people—people people of the past—that would take the experiences of David, put in simple terms and general terms. They might specifically apply it to their life and their times to live a life that would honor God through difficulties. And so it's to the choir director and stringed instruments, a Psalm of David. David penned, but he lived it first. He experienced the application that comes from this and he penned it. And he had enough criticism over time that he got a lot of practice in penning, I'm sure, and singing and writing and rewriting. And so this this psalm is presented for us. And I named it Rest for the Righteous. Rest for the Righteous for the righteous. If you're finding it easy to sleep now, it may be in the days in the future that you might find rest very hard as you pursue the things of the Lord. And my professor subtitled this or titled it in his own message, Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep. That ever so familiar prayer and song sung to our young ones. May we be young at his feet and fall as a result of these points. In the first two verses, we see prayer. the prayer of David. The prayer I'd like to encourage you to pray. In verses 3 to 4, we find trust. We all must trust. Where are you putting your trust? In verses 5 to 8, we are going to find worship. And we need to be those who worship and guide others that direction. What the world needs is an understanding of who God is so that they become worshipers of God through Christ. Verses 1-2, to prayer. Prayer. Are we a people of prayer? Are we instructed to prayer? And I think the Scriptures assume us that we'll be people of prayer. We are to call upon the Lord. Do you call upon the Lord? When you are in a tough place, call upon the Lord. We see this throughout the Psalms and David, and we, we see it here again. Yeah, early. This psalm that is much related to the previous psalm, Psalm four, Psalm three. Psalm three is the song that we get up with. Psalm four is the opposing, where we lay down and rest. On both sides, uh, we find ourselves with the need to call upon the Lord as David did. And as a result of that, difficulty cha- changes to delight. Lamentation changes to celebration. And so this psalm is often called a psalm of lamentation. But so often, David helps get our thinking aright That when we take what we know to be true and problematic, and we see God through it, and so not that we wear rose-colored glasses, but rather we see things through the eyes of God, for a Christian, we see opportunity when there's opposition. Prayer helps align us with God and what He has for our lives. The is full here of imperatives. We see David at the beginning here. Answer. Right? Be gracious. Even if we go on beyond this, this aspect of the psalm, we see other things where he says, tremble, meditate, lift towards God again. In that case, We see this imperative, this sort of, this degree of of importance that David raises. We we see almost in a sense where David's like demanding God to do something. And I think we need to be careful about saying that God is, is demanding God to do something as much as he's just so desperate for God. And I can't help but to wonder how desperate is Keith? How desperate are you? That your scenario causes you to fall flat on your face and worship God through prayer. Every one of these points, prayer, trust, worship, they overlap tremendously. So don't get caught up in an outline. Get caught up in the truth here and reflect on it forever that you might be a person of prayer who finds yourself desperate for God. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. When David prays, his prayer is definitely a plea. But David also knew not only that he needed to call out for God, but he knew the priority. His prayer was certainly that he would, he would plead to God, but he knew that the priority of his life was God and His righteousness. You and I, as David, have no place before God because we are not righteous. He accepts us before him because the righteousness of Christ is imputed. We have access to his throne because of Christ. His grace and his mercy. David talks about his, 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 the righteousness here. It's certainly, David knew his place before God. God is the righteous one. God is the only right one. Everybody else gets their direction, and since the fall has needed the direction of God to, to be right, or be redirected to righteousness. But I think what David is pulling out at the beginning, as he pleads to God, is he knows that while God is righteous, and He is not, and His righteousness has come through God's grace and mercy, which we've talked about before, is always found in God's, God's deliverance through the sacrifice, practiced in the Old Testament by the slaughtering spilling of blood the shedding, shedding of, the, of, a, of, a, of a, a lamb's blood pointed always to Jesus right? So it was on the basis of that work but what David is doing right now is, is he's pleading with God and he knows this is his priority in order to be there is that he's righteous because he did no wrong He's coming to God not because he needs to confess, but he needs help with those who are wrong. He's not in error. And so he's seeking God in prayer, in innocence. And he can go there because he knows that God knows his life and sees him. Okay, so point. This, this practical, just rough shot here. Listen, if we're going to pray to God... We've got to go to Him in righteousness. And if we're going to ask Him to help us in times of opposition, and when people are coming against us, we better not have a reason for them to come against us. Yes? It's so basic and simple, right? And if we do, we need to confess that sin and go and confess it to that person seek forgiveness. In this occasion, though, it seems as if what David is saying, I have no guilt. So he's got this pleas with this priority. He's got the prayers of the past which he brings up. I love it when the children of Israel come, come out of, of their captivity. Um, God sends them back into the water after they cross the sea, right? And he sends them back into to get rocks, right? And what do they do with those rocks? They skip them across the water? Uh, they build a monument, right? Why? To remember what God has done. All the the way through the Psalms and the Old Testament, what people do is they remember what God has done in the past so they can progress in the future. When David prays, he remembers who God is and he recounts that reality. And so he says, you have relieved me in my distress. You're already that to me. You've done in the past. I'm seeking you to do it again. Here, here's what those words mean. David was in a tight space. He's like trying to walk through. I have to try to walk through these tight aisles. That's how he felt. Enclosed. Trapped. You ever felt like that? Everything's against you? The best way to feel that way is go preach to the gospel. Go live for Christ. If you don't feel that way, then you may not be very active in the gospel. You'll be shunned. You'll be turned away. Be opposed. I mean, we don't want that, right? We don't. We don't give it in such a way that, that would happen. But that is natural outcome where the world that rejects God and Christ. David had been in those positions, whether it had been for the ministry of God or just everyday life. He knew that when he's in desperate straits in a tight place, God opened up a way, and that's what those words mean. David was squeezed in in the past, and God opened up as if to put him in a in, in a broad place of freely traveling. And so he knew God to be this kind of deliverer. He knew God, and so he appeals to him on this way. And Other psalms say, he, he brought me forth, Psalm 18, verse 19, also into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. In Psalm 18, verse 36, you enlarge my steps under me, and my feet have not slipped. And this, is, this is an experience of David, and he sings about a lot. What do you sing about? What do you pray about when you sit down with God? How do you pray? I, I told you before. One of the ways we teach our children, and we're seeking to teach your children in the, in the Sunday school hour, is is to acknowledge God. Who is God? What has He done? To 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 thank Him, and and this would be part of those things that God that we see David do in the relationship to God in his prayer. He plead He would have this priority understanding His place before Him as as being innocent. He had a past experience with God. In his, and so he brought that in his prayer life. But there's also a significant purpose in David's prayer. He wanted God to deliver him from all these troubles, right? And there's nothing wrong with that specific part of prayer. Along with the reality of who God is in our life and what he's done in the past. And we thank God. We need stuff, don't we? We need help. And God says, ask. God invites us to his throne. You do not have, he said, because you do not ask. And that's why you fight, kill, and murder. In James 4, you know what I'm talking about? We need to be people of prayer. I was really um, blessed in talking with the pastors this week about the need Pastor Matt has for us to be a people of prayer. And and, and how can we promote and encourage that? And I'm thinking, here's a great one. As I continued to study, David just continues to show us. We're a needy people. Who else are we going to go to? Right? If I needed a million dollars, would I go to any one of you? Probably not, right? Because none of you have a million dollars. If I need a million dollar delivery, am I going to go to you? Probably not. I'm going go to go the, the, to the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? The one to whom we reach and call out to. Has the greatest value and the greatest ability. And it is God. Are we people of prayer in times of difficulty? Do we go to Him? Urgency. Does it all stop and we cry out, oh God? Or do we get on Facebook? Or get our phones out and use the favorite speed dials? Or do we kick the can and my dad's like, kick the cat? What is our mode of dealing with difficulties? Is it prayer? He also recognized the problem, the real problem, making it known. Oh, sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? So he brings up a group of people. He'd been talking to God. now, he, As if in this, this prayer, in this conversation, at least in the song, song, we bring up the sons of men. These are the wayward people. These are people who, who are... Um, probably deceived they might be people of Israel they might be people of importance we don't really know we just know they're sons of men they're people and, and, and they have they have these things that are going on they're opposing the plans of God and, and David brings it up in three specific ways in this prayer he sees the problem he brings it before God and what I'm trying to say here is this when we go to God let's be specific about what our need is where the problem is I mean, it's not like we're informing God. Oh, hey, God, by the way, right? But, but we can ask specifically. we be real about our prayer and our need. Why? Because we don't need to inform Him, but it shows our dependency upon Him. That's prayer. Prayer is this, this, this conversation with God, this dependent conversation with God, this reliance upon God. If you have a prayerless life, you are probably too independent in your relationship with God. Did I say probably? I meant to be a little bit more forceful. When I am not praying, I'm doing things Keith's way. You be honest about that. How's your prayer life? Do you get it on the way to work with K Love? I mean, is it between bites of Cheerios? And I'm not saying that's a bad place to pray. I mean, man, there's some good songs. Listen and praise God. But are you stopping? The general reality throughout Scripture is that as we see prayer, people are stopping. If Jesus can stop at His busy career of healing people, I think we can get away a little bit too. He only had 33 years to get it all done. I think we can get away for some prayer. I'm sorry, that was free. Three things that were come, come up. He said, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless? How long will you aim at deception? Selah. We're breaking these up by selahs, musical notations that kind of give us something to think about or crescendos perhaps. And they're just easy to break them into three parts. It's no right or wrong there. But listen to this. In all of these things, David had a place. Who is David? David is the king of Israel. How did he get there? How did David get to the place he's at right now? He was anointed by God, he was chosen by God, an instrument, a vessel, to lead his people. He was anointed by, what's his name? Samuel. And he was elevated to a place. This is God's man for God's people at God's time. Anything in opposition to what God does is opposition to God. Everybody who opposed David in his kingship was opposed to God. David was that confident in it. Okay, I'm just going to skip to the application. Listen... If you are called of God and you are a child of God and He has given you a great commission you are part of His church, guess what you have? A job to do. You can't let people who oppose you get in the way of what you are called to do. When I see someone, how do I view them? They don't like me. I don't expect them to like me. I want them to but what's most important that I feel good and since I don't I walk away from them or do I love them and this is what I I so appreciate about David's prayer is that while he sees this is all taking place in his prayer and he's talking about these people this is great David has perspective he knows that they're against him. He knows he's, they're ultimately against God. He continues to go on. And where does the direction go? To say, oh, God, help me. Give me some self-confidence. God, bring someone along. Just cheer me up. Maybe some flowers or something. Flowers are nice. Don't get me wrong. And People are great. I want you to be around me. I need some pick-me-up. I need some locker room talk. But what is David's perspective as he looks here, as he continues on, it's it's not bound up in himself. Are you ready? Are you at the edge of your seat? This is fantastic. He turns the table, recognizing, in, in, and I will say, in his prayer, he's been specific. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for Himself. The Lord hears when I call him. Okay, what's David doing? He's, he's saying to himself, Truth. He knows his position. He knows he's been set apart for God. And so he's not going to let those who oppose him keep him from his position. Now, I know we're not kings. and not queens. I realize that. But we're messengers. Ambassadors. Children of the King of Kings. And we've got the gospel message to give. And if we embrace that, we go out fearlessly. We carry on the campaign that God's called us to, to, to the commission that the church has been given. The Lord hears when I call to Him. He's confident that God knows, and God is aware. So, what he does is first, in this trust part, verses 3 to 4, he trusts. He trusts in his place before God, and he trusts in his work where he's at. Now we don't really know who these people are necessarily but this is a corporate song, remember and it's likely it could be within the camp of Israel or outside the camp but we know that the, the nation of Israel is always supposed to be a testimony for God and drawing people to himself so anyway it is his opposition is those people who are against him and his place that God has given him but look what he does starting in verse 4 There's so much I want to say in in this. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. At first, I have to confess to you, I thought, and I still think there's a place for this here, I thought that David was talking to himself. But I think rather what he's doing is calling the sons of men back to a proper place of trusting in God. As they think about who God is and who David is and the purposes of the nation. He's telling, he's calling them to repentance. To tremble. Here is a type of body movement. Have you been ever so worked up that your body just shakes and quivers and moves? For me, you know where it starts? Right here. The belly starts moving and churning. You ever been so nervous you feel like you're going to get sick? You've been sick before from your nerves? Unable to sleep or rest? You just churn. He's talking about these people that are so likely mixed up and messed up and unwilling to accept God and His plan. And He calls them to tremble and do not sin. Paul uses it in Ephesians 4. And the idea of being angry and do not sin. He says, Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still, Selah. Paul, I mean, here, David takes a greater interest, not in himself, but in the accusers, the opposition, the people who have said to him, He's got no place, they want to remove his honor. He's thinking of them. Think about that for your life. When you have people who oppose you, who say you're a disgrace and you're no good for nothing, let me let me just give you a perspective here. Corporate or America, social America. Do you remember when Ken Ham debated? What's that guy's name? Do you remember that? Do you remember the whole premise of that debate? You know, did anybody see it? Do you remember what the point of... of, of uh, well, most of Christendom wanted Ken Ham to make sure that Bill Nye, the science guy, got saved in all of the world at the same time. Which, that's a great prayer. <laughs> but they thought that, that it was to refute evolution. That wasn't the point. That wasn't the point of the debate. If you went in it like that, you, you were sorely dis- disappointed. And if you haven't watched it, just watch it. This is to push you in that way. The point of the, the debate was whether or not a Christian can have credible... Credible contributions to science. That's what it was about. And Bill Nye says Christians don't have a place in science. And Ken Ham, in Answers in Genesis, in Christendom says, We know the science guy. That would be irreverent. We know God. And we can work under him. And use his creation, manage it for good. And Ken Ham's point was to show how Christians throughout history have used science, giving God glory, and developing the society for good. Bill Nye said that's not possible. Ken Ham won the debate because he proved it century after century after century. Go back, watch the debate, it's clear. The argument that society makes is, folks, if you stick with God and his plan for humanity, you can't make society succeed. You're a dead weight. And you mark my words, it will be the challenge that if we don't see, our children will see. Christians do not help. They hinder the progress of society. That's the argument, folks. Now, why would I bring it up? You and I can put our proverbial tail between our legs and run to the hills. Or, we can put on the armor of God. And remember that the battle belongs to the Lord. Listen, this is not a battle of flesh and blood. I am not to hate my enemy who refuses to hear me in my position with God. I am a blood-bought sinner, indebted to the one who died for those who will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And my goal is not condemn them. If they're in Christ, it's His work. It's done. If they're not in Christ, it's my job to proclaim Him. And when that armor of God is on, we're supposed to be people of prayer. And so that makes us dependent upon the fact that He will do His work. He will build His kingdom. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. We must have that confidence or we will be those people with tails between our legs and we will run. I don't expect for people to fall down at the gospel immediately, but I expect my God to do exactly what he says. Everyone that he has called will come. And until that point, David knew it, and you and I must know it, and every point in history must know it. We are immortal until God calls us home. Do not fear him who can kill body, but him body and soul and destroy it in hell what is it that motivates us if we know our place before God and the purposes he has for our life we are a useful instrument and if we are not we are a weak vessel destined for the purposes that he has not planned and so David knew his place and so he was was after them telling them to change their direction to get into uh, connection with God and his plan they were to think about the things of the Lord upon their bed and be still. And do you know what? When we're in evangelistic times, when we're trying to steer people, whether it's inside the church or outside the church, we want them to think about truth. Look, if you need counseling, the whole point of counseling is not that you're lesser than any Christian in the church. Is we want to make you better where you're at, have you thinking about the truths of God, rehearsing them in your mind, meditating upon them. This idea of meditation is to, to say, to say, to speak over and over again. Christians who say truth to themselves over and over again don't get caught up with lies that people tell them throughout day to day. That's why I say, read the Bible! My life got changed! And I tell people that. I say when I give them the truth of God and the gospel, I say to them, look, I never thought in a million years I'd talk to you about the gospel. Now, that was back when I was in my 18s, whatever. I still use that experience. I never thought I would talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ to people. Now I want people to think about God and what He says. And even if they don't bow the knee, and quite honestly, I've never had anybody bow right there on the spot to give them the gospel and accept Jesus Christ. I wish all the time. I had that kind of imagination still. But I say, think about this. And my prayer is that the continued truth of God's Word that's live and active will continue to penetrate into their mind. Because God saves, I don't. I want them to be the kind of people who can't sleep because the truths that they've heard. They're rallying around in their mind that they would be people who are challenged. That they would be still and not fight against God. And so I think this is a completely different view that I ever had. And I'm like, oh, this is about the people who need to conform to the will of God for David and their lives to lead them in righteousness. And just today, in the same way, we need to be able to pray for the people who are opposed to God. And need to be challenged with the truth, the truth and follow out what he has designed for all of humanity to do. To be restored back to its original creation where all people are worshiping, worshiping God. Is that your imagination? The people would be stilled by that? And so he says, offer the sacrifice of righteousness and trust in the Lord. What is the, what is the sacrifice of righteousness that he's talking about? Certainly we got the Old Testament sacrificial system. Whereby there was routine sacrifices made of different sorts, and there's a lot of study there. And to be honest with you, I always feel deficient in understanding all the sacrifices that they are worthy study. And it'd be a great Sunday school, I don't know, to do, to teach me, Dale, um, just to delve into the significance, because all of the things were done in the Old Testament. They go back and they reflect upon the fulfillment and the new in Christ. But what is the sacrifice of righteousness ultimately? They all point to Christ. And He wants to point them to, to God's promises and, and the law and keeping them and the Messiah and the deliverance and all of those things. But in our day, the trust in the Lord will come through the righteous sacrifice of Christ. Listen, folks, If in a gospel presentation and pointing people back in our, in, our, in our counseling sessions to Christ and His significance and not our significance, my goodness sakes, when people are struggling, the last thing they need to do is look at them and they're good. Look at Christ and His goodness. And we're reaching out to the lost. We need not to give them the direction that I have or that they've done in the past, but to take all that off and put on Christ and go with Him And this is the righteousness we're talking about. We're talking about having a way, going the way with God, to trust in Him. We see backwards. They saw forward. But we can point people to the cross, the reality of the historical Jesus that can't be argued. We have a solid and secure argument for Christ. We have a a great apologetic. We have no sorrow for and so this is his emphasis, his desire in this, it was, was to see people in their need, and that needs to be ours when we're in opposition. We need to have that, that reality that we are going to be those people who trust God through opposition to do what we've been called to do, like David continued to rule. If it's possible that Psalm 3 and 4 are related, then the opening covers this, and perhaps this is Absalom kicking him out of Jerusalem. We don't know. But the reality is the opposition was there, and David would have to trust his position with God to rule and continue. And the church has to trust our position in the time that he's placed us to communicate the truth that people would look to this righteousness found in Christ and Christ alone. That imputed righteousness that every person needs in order to stand before God. And so, David would be a person of prayer. Do you pray? Please pray. Do you trust God and who He's, who he's called you out to be? You know, look, there is no such thing as spectators in Christendom. A call is for action. There's no lazy boy you've been called into. It's a go, boy. Go, girl. <laughs> so thirdly, verses 5 to 8. Worship. Worship, church. Worship like David did. God is the most significant. When you worship, you will find God to be most significant. And, and, and there is a reality, probably in David's day like our day, maybe when you got up this morning, it was just Sunday. Bo said to me, is it church day? That's what he said to me. That's one of the first words he said to me: it's "Church day, we go to church today. Yeah, we're going to go be with the people today." It's what we do on Sundays. It's what we like to do on Mondays too. And Tuesdays wouldn't be bad. How about Wednesday? Wait, we do that on Wednesday. You going to come? How about church? We don't. We have days sometimes that separate us, but we don't stop. And the significance is the worship is is our entire life. Fallen down before God, picked up to do his duty with great delight. God is the most significant. When you worship, you will find God to be most significant. And, and so, probably in David's day, like ours, people went through the rituals, the festivals, the sacrifices, all of that stuff. We don't have to do a fraction of that, right? We say we're in the day of grace. And we are. Uh, but but our lives need to be laid down before Him that we might go out for Him, and so I, I think in verses four to to um, five to eight here we see this idea of worship, and I want to bring out here offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust the Lord. Kind of a kind of an overlap between verses um, three and four. With the trust idea, many are saying, Who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart, more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And so, this idea of of worship... It's recognizing this ongoing practice that's supposed to be part of our life. Now, in their day, it was, the, it was the sacrifices, the festivals, the rituals, and those sorts of things that God commanded them to do. And they weren't wrong. They were right, because He said do it, and so they, they did it. That was good. But when you remove the relationship part from it, the genuineness of it, what happens? Ho-hum, dull drum, lackluster, right? No genuine involvement. Um, kind of like coming to to church on Sunday sometimes, right? Or doing the things we are supposed to do. You know, it kind of gets dull at times when we forget. Wait a minute. This is an upward act. This is worship. I'm offering my body as a living sacrifice. But is wholly acceptable, right? This is based upon the mercies of God. Wait a minute. I've received the mercies of God. I get to do the things He said to do. Like, I don't know, like die for my wife. I like that she lives for me. That's uh, vision 5, right? I love my wife living for me. I went to bed last night. Sorry, babe. I probably shouldn't do this. I just praise God. I said I'm sleeping under shelter in, 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 in a soft bed with covers next to a wife who loves me regularly with her life. Four children. Provision. This is too much for me. I don't deserve this. Out like a light. <laughs> Rested. Not complete by any means, but wow, my God, it's given me so much, and He's done that for you. What am I using it for? What, what is it for? Is it for the advancement of God's kingdom? I mean, that was David's. When he, David was his best, it was all about God. He wanted to build him a house, right? Here are the sacrifices. Conquer where he's supposed to conquer, where business wasn't done in the past, he needed to do it. You know, that's when he was the best, when he consulted God, when he stuck to his place, when he confessed his sin, even. That's times of David. I mean, this, is, this, is, this is all worship, and even into today. And so we see this reality as we look at this, the offers, offering sacrifice of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, Who will show us any good? They had a doubt. Who? Are you kidding me? Who? Who has called you out of Egypt? Who has separated the waters? Who has led you by day with a... And by night by a... Hello. <laughs> this is where I know I'm losing you, so I've got to start drawing you in. I'm being strategic. God led them out of, out of captivity and into the promised land. And what by day? Cloud. And, and by night, a fire. When, when the markers of God stopped, what did they do? It's like Simon says, right? God says, stop. And they can't. And, and, and this is what they, they remember. All of what God has done. And they're going to say, who is going to do good for us? Wait a minute. Hello, you were a nation that weren't a nation. I made you into a nation. I gave you shoes that did not wear out. I gave you manna manna in my mind is like um, golden Wheaties (laughs) but I'm sure it falls way short of that point yes a little levity but the point is listen God gave them everything they needed and and David's going to hear within his kingdom who's going to do us good are you kidding me and the church is going to say who's going to do us good are you kidding me it's already been done quit living for something else that's a problem good has been redefined as in david's day in our day we're defining differently two large oak trees fell in my yard i couldn't get my arms around them if i tried they fell on purpose with a chainsaw <laughs> I have my quiet sanctuary disturbed. Not because the crashing sound is still there, but the destruction. I sit on my porch where I pray and I read my Bible, and of course there's coffee. And I look at that backyard and I'm like, ah, what am I going to do with this mess? It's disturbing. And I know it sounds silly, but maybe you live this way too. Where's the good gonna come from this? And my my energy is redirected from God and His Word and what I supposed to do in that day in this stupid backyard. What? Why? And I know that might be silly to you, but we, we allow ourselves to be distracted to the things that are good that we're supposed to to do, belaboring the point. And so David the answer to his to, to these people who are lost. Lift up. We're back to God. Lift up. David addresses God. Lift up, verse 6, the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. This is David saying, God, just look at us. Fix your gaze upon us. That will be life. That will be good. That's it. Look, I'm looking at you, right? Right? For illustration's sake. I see you. I've tried to make eye contact with every single one of you. I've missed the front row until now. I'm sorry. But... What happens when I turn my back? If I talk to you in this direction, how effective is our relationship? How meaningful is the communication I make? I can even use my gestures, but it's not effective. But when I'm looking at you, I hope that you understand that I'm trying to connect with you. I'm trying to communicate God's word to you. I'm trying to have a relationship with you, though it's it's a monologue um, type of thing. Uh, It's a dialogue if I see your eyes. And David... In the Old Testament, the countenance of God, the face of God, to look upon them would be favor. My father corrected me. He said, son, look at me. Look at me, he said. I didn't want to. Why? Because usually I was ashamed. I was ashamed that I did wrong. When we can look each other in the eye, guess, what, guess what's happening with our relationship? No, Don't turn away from me. I love you. When we can look at each other in the eye, what does it communicate? Hopefully good, right? David is confident. You can look at us, God. God, you can take care of us. We're going to do things your way. We're going to make the righteous sacrifices. We're going to do things your way. This is restorative. We're gonna lead the people rightly. I'm not gonna leave my post, I'm gonna lead them to the purposes of God. And so we have David wanting to have them worship God. You have put gladness in my heart, joy, celebration. More than when their grain and new wine abound more than prosperity this doesn't register for us but if you plant a tomato like me and watch it get beat down all week long by the rain you'd understand this a little bit more because come harvest time when that plant has tomatoes on it I'll be like yes because it will produce what it's meant to produce and there's a lot of celebration in harvest time and you may not think this but you do it too because every day you sit down at your table or go to McDonald's wherever you go to eat whatever the course is Your thankfulness is is that produce came out of what was worked on. And you ate. So so here it is God, you're greater than everything necessary in life. Jesus said, I came to do my Father's will. Who gave him something to eat? He said, I came to do my Father's will. It is bread for me. His will sustains me. His will. Doing his will is worship. Thus, in worship, a byproduct is not just being satiated with the significance of what God has said to do, but also rest for the weary soul. Lamentation turned into celebration. And after every good celebration, we need to go to bed. And David says in verse 8, he says, In peace, I will both lie down, right, and sleep. There's a lot of people who put their heads on the pillow and they cannot rest. I've known people who've gone through divorces, their life has been separated by infidelity, and they lay their head on their pillow night after night, and they shut their eyes and they cannot sleep. When you lay your head on your pillow at night, Christian, the faithfulness of God lived out in everyday worship, celebrating the significance of Christ you can sleep why? because you're safe you're safe there's nothing anybody can do to remove you from God there's nothing anybody can do to disrupt the place you have with God. John ten twenty-seven. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. Maybe it's just not measured in time, it's seen in eternity. Passing shadow of persecution in now time. Forever eternal time. Presence of God. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my, my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. No one. And as we face opposition and challenge in the days ahead, we don't do so with hatred. We don't do so with opposition that we take up our fisticuffs. That's an old word for this. We do so with the hope of seeing people come to Christ to embrace the righteous sacrifice of Christ and to be redeemed so that no longer do they oppose the plan of God and His purposes, but they pursue them. And they prosper under them. That's how we need to pray. So that we trust that God will bring about worshipers in the days ahead. Is that how you see the future of, of this great sovereign work of God as we chapel here today? I hope so. Imagine big. Don't run from opposition respond with righteousness and celebrate each night with the work and wonder of God through you with sleep. Tomorrow is another day. May God bless it all the same. Let's pray. Father, we are those who are unworthy to be mouthpieces and instruments for you. David would pen a psalm, a song to be sung by your people to remember much. He counted on you. He prayed to you. He trusted in you. He wanted to see people rightly worshiping you. May that be our goal too. We are part of a country made from the same bolt of fabric that opposes you. We wrap ourselves in the colors of our flag and want to be independent from you. May we truly, though, be as founded under God, liberated by Christ, a nation with you pleased to look upon. Until that day when Jesus comes back and you bring every tribe and nation together under the rule and the head of Christ. May we imagine that someday in the future with our neighbors. Expand our view, Father. Commit us to depend upon you for what you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.